back when I was young, why does that now make me think of, you know, once upon a time? Because often my stories sound like once upon a time, don't they? But probably because it was a while ago now, we had this concept in American jurisprudence called justice. A saying back then was, uh, don't do the crime if you can't do the time. Murder, when I was a boy, was a capital offense, okay? Murder was, now it's what, three years and you're out, you know? I even remember a rapist being executed in California in my early youth. Uh, The crimes were committed back in 1949, but he was executed in 1960 for those uh, crimes. And if a murderer did not receive the death penalty, they would be sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. What that meant was that society would lock a murderer away for the rest of their lives and not let them out. That's sort of the meaning of, you know, without possibility of parole. The late 1960s changed all that. Criminal justice reformers convinced legislators that capital punishment and life in prison without parole were cruel and unusual punishment, according to the Constitution of the United States. Prisons were therefore renamed penitentiaries. Okay? Um, A place where penitent criminals would be rehabilitated to resume a place in society. That sounds very good, doesn't it? Well, in the late 1960s, I lived next door to the most notorious killers of the 20th century. Okay? Not counting Joseph Stalin and Mao Zedong and Paul Pot, okay? Uh, If we get rid of the uh, mass murders in governments, I live next door to the most notorious killers. Um, Now, next door is kind of misleading, okay? I lived in the the foothills of the Santa Susana Mountains, and the Spawn Ranch was um, the next property to the west of ours, one half mile or so of rugged trail out my back door, across the headwaters of the Los Angeles River. Sounds pretty impressive, doesn't it? until you realize that the headwaters of the Los Angeles River is a dry wash most of the year. Various members, oh, and if you didn't walk a half mile out the back door of my house and take the rugged mountain trail and cross the headwaters of the uh, um, Los Angeles River, you, you could take a mile and a half drive on the Santa Susana Pass Road up to where these people lived. Various members of the Manson family were convicted of nine cold-blooded murders and suspected of 15 more and bragged of 11 more than that. Okay, so that's a lot of carnage uh, for a bunch of hippies living in third world conditions on that ranch. Yet, though all received the death penalty, none were ever executed. Every last one convicted of the most horrific murders of the 20th century 
were deemed eligible for parole after California changed its uh, uh, capital punishment laws in 1977. All were deemed eligible for parole, as I said, and one, Leslie Van Houten, was freed on parole just in July of this year, okay? After Governor Newsom, Gavin Newsom, Governor Gavin Newsom said that she expressed remorse, okay? I looked it up. I read what he had to say, and it was that she expressed remorse. And thus, the theme of today's sermon is judicial exercises whose purpose is to elicit remorse. You see, Charles Manson died in prison because he did not express remorse. Okay? That's, he came up for parole every couple of years, whatever the law is. Uh, but he was never sorry. He did not express remorse as though he was a four-year-old caught stealing penny candy, and people don't know what penny candy is anymore. Jar and the five and dime, people don't know what a five and dime is anymore, that you could get a candy for a penny. But Charles Manson did not express remorse because he was a cold-blooded, murdering psychopath. Okay? Uh, they don't really feel sorry for what they do. He was a psychopath just as the aforementioned Joe Stalin, mousy tongue, Paul Pot, Adolf Hitler, and every other 20th century dictator on that list was. History regards them as monsters today because they never said they were sorry. Okay? They were never sorry for what they did. Our passage today in Acts, chapter 16, verses 35 through 40, involves two men incarcerated in a Roman prison who were likewise unwilling to express remorse for an entirely different reason. They were innocent. There was no reason that they should express remorse for anything. Acts 16, 35 through 40 reads, But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, Let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman soldiers, and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out in secret? No, let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed." There can be different reasons why people convicted of a crime do not express remorse. Uh, the first example I gave you was a psychopath, and they are never very sorry about anything. A second reason, and we see this often, is someone falsely convicted who refuses to confess to something they did not do 
even though such confession would be seen as remorse and viewed favorably at a parole hearing. There are many cases of these things. I'm sure you've all heard of these cases, especially when new evidence, common in this age of uh, DNA matching, exonerates someone held for, uh, just recently, somebody 25 years in prison for something they did not do. And they would not confess, and they would not say they were sorry because they did not do it. Now, whether one is guilty and is given parole on expression of remorse, or not guilty and not remorseful but released on discovery of new evidence, universally those released from prison are grateful and don't let the door, jail doors hit them on the way out. They get out as quickly as they can. But not the Apostle Paul. He refused to leave the jail to which he is imprisoned unless he received an apology from the judicial system and its officials who have unjustly incarcerated him. Verse 35 says, But when it was day, the magistrate sent the police, saying, let those men go. Now last week we did a um, short dive into the western text of the scriptures in Greek. And the added detail it contains, which included the earthquake at midnight, which nobody else had included in all the other lines of text, and has now been incorporated into every Bible translation. Well, the western text in this case reads this way. But when it was day, the magistrates, now, so far so good, we're following along here, assembled together into the marketplace and recollecting the earthquake that had happened, they were afraid. And they sent the sergeant saying, let those men go whom yesterday thou didst receive. You remember that the Western text adds detail. Here it ties in the uh, earthquake that happened at night to the magistrates remembering it in the morning. They say basically that in the earthquake indisputable evidence that God, that the God of Paul and Silas was real and powerful and accompanying the missionaries was the order of the day. They needed, because of that, to release them without anything further. Because if you, if you read the first one, but when it was day, the magistrate sent the police saying, let those men go. Well, why? Why would it say that? They'd already been disturbing the peace. They were accused of, disturbing the peace was a big crime in Roman uh, times, um, that they were leading people astray, teaching them to worship foreign gods. That detail is left out. The magistrates, therefore, sent the police, the same lictors who had administered the caning to uh, Paul and Silas the day before, same guys, uh, when they say the police, it's the lictors with their canes and their axe uh, as their emblem, 
They sent the same people to tell the Philippian jailer to release them. And the jailer, now a newly baptized uh, Christian brother of Paul and Silas, passes a message on to the men in verse 36. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But if the magistrates thought that Paul and Silas would go quietly, just thankful to be out of prison, as everyone who in that position is, they were sadly mistaken. Verse 37 says, But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. Now, it's not that Paul refused to go peacefully. He refused to go, okay? He's staying there in the jail until he gets his satisfaction from the authorities. Paul here proclaims the Roman citizenship of he and Silas, something he either did not do the previous day or was ignored in the wake of the violence that was surrounding these men. Now, it's interesting to notice, and, uh, and my commentators noted also, that Paul undergoes three canings uh, he's, uh, by the Romans. He's thrown into prison numerous times. We don't even know how many times. Lynchings at the hands of Romans. And he never proclaims his Roman citizenship. Okay, he never, uh, except here, but he didn't do it at the time. And it's suspected that it was a very calculated thing on his part to undergo the punishment to either have a hand up on the Roman authorities wherever he's been beaten because he has this card to play, or to identify with the suffering of Christ and the suffering of the Christians that he was bringing in to the church. So here he proclaims his uh, citizenship in the wake of the violence and riot instigated by the owners of the fortune-telling slave girl. This was an extremely serious charge for Paul to bring. Just as disturbing the peace was a very serious charge to be charged within the Roman Empire, to charge an well, a absence of justice of those entrusted to ensure it in the Roman Empire was incredibly serious. Um, from the very beginning of the Roman Empire, 600 years before, in 509 BC, the rights of Roman citizens were jealously defended. The Valerian Code of 509 BC, as well as the Porcian Code in 248 BC, as well as the Julian Law Codes from 23 BC, all made it against the law to cane or flog a Roman citizen. Okay? There were exceptions to this, but only after a full hearing on the part of the citizen. And Paul and Silas had no hearing. They were just summarily flogged. Uh, the commenter Daryl Bach says that the risk to the magistrates is substantial for part of their role 
is to protect Roman citizens from injustice. If they fail in giving such protection, they might never serve in such a role again. It is doubtful that Paul and Silas carried proof of their citizenship. Uh, citizenship was a wooden token, okay, uh, that I don't know if it named you, but it was a token of your Roman citizenship. People did not travel with this. This was a very important document. They kept it safe. However, when they proclaimed themselves Roman citizens, you'll notice the magistrates did not say word one about, oh, you know, prove it. Because the penalty for claiming to be a Roman citizen when you weren't was terrible. I mean, I don't know what the penalty was, but I can assume it was death, okay? You did not go around proclaiming yourself to be a Roman citizen unless you were a Roman citizen. And there, Paul's claim is accepted without any pushback. Paul's insistence on the magistrates themselves releasing he and Silas from prison was not some sort of petulant comeuppance on his part. There was a reason he demanded this. He, and by extension, Christianity, and the new Christian church meeting in Lydia's home in Philippi, had been accused of disturbing the peace and encouraging Roman citizens to worship in a forbidden manner. Since there was no trial and not even a hearing, these charges had never been satisfactorily adjudicated. And because of this, the Philippian Christians, these new, this new church was in danger of further assaults legally or physically by forcing the magistrates to come and take them out of prison and set them publicly free, Paul and Silas have been vindicated and declared innocent of all the charges. If they remove you without charges and set you free, you're not guilty of anything. You're innocent of everything. Verse 38 says, the police reported these words to the magistrates and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. And well, the magistrates should have been afraid. Those charges, uh, those charged with delivering justice should be careful to be just. And now we're seeing a little bit of that in our country these days where something like 70% of Americans, not of one party or the other, but as 70% of Americans think justice is being ignored in this country today. Those charged with delivering justice should be careful to be just because one never knows when one will need justice delivered faithfully to themselves, right? Shoe goes on the other foot rather easily in in politics and in justice. Verse 39 says, So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. Now that's a really straightforward sort of blah verse, okay? And I was saying, oh, you know, how do you explain this one? I mean, that's it. Well, the Western text, once again, elaborates on this. Verses 38 and 39 in the Western text says, 
And the sergeants, which is the police in the, I, I don't know what version this is translated into, I'm suspecting it's a King James. And I didn't bother changing it. Uh, by the way, I did find the Western text uh, for Acts in, uh, on the internet where everything is. Uh, it's now bookmarked along with all my other bookmarks for Acts. But, uh, and the sergeants reported to the magistrates themselves these words which were spoken for the magistrates. And when they heard that they were Romans, they feared. And they came with many friends to the prison and besought them to go forth saying, we did not know about you that you are just men. And when they had brought them forth, they besought them saying, go forth out of this city, lest they again assemble against us and crying against you. Okay. So as I said last week, the Western text adds some clarification and some more detail to these things. The magistrates came with many friends, it says, not to protect themselves from Paul and Silas, who after all were just two unarmed men under the custody of a Roman jailer, but against the pagan citizenry of Philippi. That's who they were protecting themselves against, uh, who they feared might rise up against, up against them or continue their riot against Paul and Silas. So this is what they showed up with this gang of men for. You'll notice also that the magistrates asked them, pretty pleased, to leave the prison. The wording actually in Greek says that they begged them repeatedly, okay, to leave the city. And this was because as Roman citizens, accused of nothing, Paul and Silas could not be put out of any Roman city in the empire. It was against the law to expel a Roman citizen accused of no crime, accused of nothing from the city. Just another protection of the ancient Roman laws. Verse 40, our concluding verse for the today says, So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. And the Western text says, And they went out of the prison and went to Lydia. And when they had seen the brethren, they reported all the things which the Lord had done for them comforted them, and departed. Before leaving Philippi, Paul and Silas make one more trip back to that church that they started. Paul often makes, always made attempts to visit or talk to the churches that he had begun. So they went to Lydia's house where that original European church, Christian church met to encourage the brethren with all God had done to protect them and comforting them in the process. But that wasn't the end of the Philippian church, okay? By any means. Nine years later, we're talking that we're here about AD 51. In AD 60, nine years later, the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Philippi in the epistle that we know as, know as Philippians, okay? And here is what has become of that first purely Gentile church. 
Uh, so it's Philippians 1, 1 through something. I don't know that I wrote it down. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from our God, God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only was the church still meeting, and there were many to all the saints, but also to the overseers, which are pastors, and deacons. This was not a struggling church at this point. This church is a going concern with pastors, deacons, and a number of saints. From the smallest of beginnings, it now had, as I say, overseers, pastors, plural, deacons, plural. Paul continued on in his letter to the Philippians with this. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always and in every prayer of mine for you all, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. As F.F. Bruce notes, the future history of the church in Philippi made for pleasant reading. You know, Paul doesn't say to the Philippians, do I have to come to you with a stick? Okay? He says, you've been my partners from the first day in my ministry till now in my imprisonment. The hospitality shown to Paul, Silas, Luke, and Timothy, morphed into a long-term partnership with Paul, evidenced by repeated gifts to the apostles from not just Lydia, but from the entire church. And now, as Paul and Silas look deeper westward into Europe for new mission fields to go to, Dr. Luke apparently does not go with them. Okay? He stays in Philippi. Uh, this is the end of the first portion of him including himself in the account of the missionary journeys. That's the end of the first we did this section. The second section begins when Paul returns to Philippi. And once again, it will be Luke writing in the first person about what we did so as Paul and Silas continue expanding Christ's kingdom, they will preach, as they always do, repentance for the forgiveness of sins. You know, they don't preach remorse for the repentance of sins. They preach repentance. 
Remorse was good enough for Gavin Newsom in the parole of Leslie Van Houten and basically for the rest of our judicial system, but remorse is not good enough for God. Okay, being remorseful doesn't cut it. Now, in the Greek, repentance and remorse are the same Greek word. Okay? I was a little bit surprised at that, but... Uh, Indeed, in Matthew 27, when Jesus, when Judas realizes his betrayal of Jesus will lead to Jesus' crucifixion, the King James translation says he repented himself. Okay? Well, that's not a good translation. He did not repent, he was remorseful. In fact, every other version says, um, that he was remorseful, including the ESV. The ESV does not. It uses completely different language, but the NASB says Judas was remorseful, and so does, like I say, everybody else. But he did not repent. And how do I know he did not repent? Because if Judas had repented, Jesus would have forgiven him. Okay? Uh, the unforgiveness sin is the one that you won't repent of. Jesus would have forgiven him. But Matthew 6, 23 through 25 tells the story of this. Jesus was asked who was going to be, uh, betray him. And he answered, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The son of man goes it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. He will not be forgiven. A more accurate translation than the uh, King James Version gives this account of Matthew 27, 1 through 5. Now, when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people conferred together against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. Then when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned, he felt remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying, by betraying innocent blood. But they said, what is that to us? You shall see to it yourself. And he threw the pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary and left. And he went away and hanged himself. Judas did not repent. He was filled with remorse. He was sorry for what he had done. The same with many criminals. Okay? They feel sorry. They're sorry they got caught. Okay? They're sorry where they are. Sometimes they might be sorry that they killed somebody, and actually some of them may truly repent. But, but remorse, being sorry, is a feeling. It's only a feeling. Repentance is an action. They're completely different. To repent means that you 
have to turn back. It means that you have to do something more than saying, oh, sorry, you know. Judas was sorry that he betrayed Jesus. But true repentance, and, and somebody brought this out, and I don't remember who, true repentance in this case would have meant him going before the Sanhedrin and the Roman court and saying that he had given false witness against Jesus. And you might remember what, what happens when you give false witness to the Romans. You get the penalty that was going to be given to the one that you testified against. For, for Judas to have done that would have meant that Judas was getting crucified. And truth be told, they might have crucified Jesus too, just because of the Romans. But Judas could not do that. And did not do that. Admitting his own guilt in a Roman judicial proceeding would put Judas at risk for the sentence the one he lied about was to receive. That was Roman law. And the only way Judas could repent would have Jesus' fate transferred to him. That was too much. Judas was remorseful. But he didn't repent Repentance is what was preached by Paul, but also by every good Christian preacher, starting with Jesus himself. Repentance is to put to death your old self and putting on the righteousness of Christ, your true new self. It is not remorse, feeling sorry for your failures, but an action of putting on a new self, a new life, and that is what our justice system and Gavin Newsom misses. Being sorry isn't enough. A new life is necessary. If you don't have that, Jesus Christ said it best. He said it would have been better for you never to have been born if you don't repent. Let's close in prayer.